The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Good morning. I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 2. This is the biblical account of the birth of Jesus. And uh, what I want to do is uh, let you see in this context that Luke, who wrote the, the Gospel of Luke, believed that this was the greatest event in all of history. Now, from our perspective, as we look back on the birth of Christ, we look through his whole life, his death on the cross, his resurrection, ascension to the Father, and so forth, and all the way back through his life of ministry. In fact, the book of Galatians in chapter 3, it talks about the coming of Christ as the coming of faith. When Jesus came, the one in whom we believe, the one whom we trust for salvation, came, and all that he did is viewed as one great long event. But when Luke is writing this, he's writing the account of the birth of Jesus, and it's obvious that he believes this is the greatest thing that's ever happened in the world, this glorious event. And so I want us to take a look at... uh, this passage and see why he says that. If you're at Luke chapter 2, let me read this this first section, the first 20 verses of chapter 2. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, that is the first Caesar, that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city, his own hometown, that is the family hometown. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today... In the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is called Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. What's the sign? Here's the sign. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about the child. And all who heard about this wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Let's pray. 
Our Father, we come before you now. Uh, we want you to fill our hearts and our minds with the reality of this glorious event when you sent your Son into the world. We are so grateful that you would love us this much, that you would send your Son to rescue us, to bring us into the family of God, to forgive our sins, to make us whole. And so we give you thanks today. We're not just celebrating a holiday. We are celebrating the glorious event, the greatest event of all of history, that at the high point of the ages, Jesus came to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so we thank you and worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. So why does Luke think this is the greatest event that ever took place in history? Well, the first reason he tells us is that it's the greatest act of humility. This is by far the greatest act of humility ever recorded in all of Scripture. It was when the glorious, eternal Son of God stooped to come into the world in these humble circumstances. Now, what you find here in the first five verses, for example, he tells us about the census that was taken. Well, when they took a census, they didn't just send some, send some census uh, gathers around to your house to find out how many people live in your home and information about you. Instead, everybody had to go back to their hometown. That is the, the, the town where their family originated. Now, you know the circumstances of Mary, who was with child. In fact, in the King James, it says she was great with child. <laughs> she was just about to deliver, and she tra has to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now, if you look on a map or if you Google this, you'll discover that that was almost 69 miles on a donkey. Imagine that. Great with child, ready to deliver a baby, and you ride for 70 miles practically on a donkey. Why in the world would God put his son through this? Was this just a coincidence that 700 years before this in Micah, the, the prophet Micah wrote in Micah 5.2 that he would be born in Bethlehem, and he lived in Nazareth, 70 miles away. And so God causes a census to be taken, and they have to travel for these 70 miles, and she travels on the back of a donkey in order to give birth to Jesus in Bethlehem. And of course, in the providence of God, this took place. But this was a, a great event of humility on the, on the part of Jesus Christ because he's the eternal son of God. He's the king of glory, the high king of heaven. And yet he comes into the world in order to take on our humanity so that he could take our place and suffer for us and be raised and rule over us and give us salvation. He was willing to come into these circumstances and so he comes to Bethlehem. It says he goes up to Bethlehem. It's actually south, but it's a higher elevation. So he, he comes to Bethlehem in his mother's womb. This woman who's betrothed to a man, but has not known a man, a virgin. And he's going to be born in these humble circumstances. Is this just fortune or bad luck or what is this? No, this is the, this is the providence of his father. In the providence of God, he brings about the entrance of the eternal Son of God into our circumstances in a way that no one would choose to enter in order to show us. And this story is being told all over the world today. 
in order to show us what he was willing to do in order to come to us, to bring God to us, and then to bring us to God through his death, burial, and resurrection. This glorious Son of God. This wasn't blind, impersonal forces at work. This was God at work. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't make real decisions and things happen. There's concurrence, the, the fact that, that God makes decisions and he uses within the carrying out of those decisions the very decisions of men. He brings about his purpose and his will. Sometimes uh, we wonder why God allows certain things in our lives. In fact, you may have even asked God, why? Why? Why is this happening? Why have you allowed this to happen? In fact, you remember Joseph, uh, one of the sons of Jacob, who was sold by his brothers into slavery. And in, in Genesis 50, we have the account of his brothers who sold him into slavery. And you know all that he went through. He was taken down into Egypt. He was imprisoned. He went through horrible suffering. And now, through the providence of God, he's the, he's the most powerful man in Egypt. And his family are in great need. And so they go down to Egypt to get food. And they come face to face with Joseph. They don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. And you know how the story goes. And finally, they discover, because he tells them that this is their brother, Joseph, the one that they had sold into slavery. And they're scared to death, and they should be, shouldn't they? Because this is the most powerful man in the world, and he can do with them whatever he wants. But do you remember what he said to them? He said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You say they acted, and what they did was horrible. <laughs> they should have been punished for it. And yet it was all in the providence of God in bringing his man, Joseph, down into Egypt in order to save his people from starvation. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so in the providence of God, God has Mary go all the way down to Bethlehem to have this baby. I was thinking about this, this a 69-mile ride on a donkey. Even if you're not with, great with child, that would be a tough, that would be a tough uh, trip, wouldn't it? I mean, think of uh, wherever you've come from, wherever you've been traveling during this Christmas season, you've gone places in the great comfort of your automobile. But Jesus comes to birth through this, these circumstances. It reminds me of uh, the, the account of Christ's death. Remember when, how Jesus suffered on that Friday before he rose from the dead. We celebrate Easter on a Sunday because we believe he was raised on a Sunday, the first day of the week. He died on Friday. Good Friday. Why do we call it that? Why don't we call it Bad Friday? Because this horrible thing happened to Jesus. He was crucified. He was beaten beyond recognition and hung on a cross on Friday. And yet we call it Good Friday. Why is that? Because it's when God, through these circumstances, in fact, Peter puts it this way in the sermon on, on uh, Pentecost. He said, you, with wicked hands, according to the foreknowledge and predetermined plan of God, handed him over to be crucified. You see, we make real decisions, but God is providentially overriding everything and overseeing everything. He's accomplishing his will and his purpose. And it was his will and purpose for Jesus to die 
on that Friday. So we call it a Good Friday because it's this glorious day in which Jesus stood in our place and suffered for us. I love the expression in Romans 8 when it says that he, in the, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He came in these humble, humble circumstances in order to die for us. What you heard this morning in Philippians chapter 2 tells us that even though he was in the form of God, he didn't think being equal with God was something that he would grasp and hold on to for his own benefit rather than being willing to be humbled and to come into the world. And it says he emptied himself. You know how he emptied himself? Well, it tells you there. It says he took on the form of a servant. He emptied himself by adding something to himself. He actually appears in the world as a humble servant. He, he is born in the most humble of circumstances. Now, the, the birth of Jesus is described for us here in verses 6 and 7. And it says there was no room in the inn. The inn was, was the expression is a con. It meant a, a place where people, where people would build these things and rent out these rooms. And they would be in kind of a, a U-form. And in the center would be the parking lot where people would park their Mercedes and Fords. No, they would, they would park their vehicles, which were animals. Donkeys, horses, camels, whatever. So it was an animal shelter. These cons, these rooms were built about three feet off the ground. And uh, down, in the, down in the dirt were the animals. So this is like going into a barnyard. And that's where Jesus was born. The delivery room is this, some unoccupied corner of this, uh, this animal shelter. Imagine the litter, the uh, closeness, the smell. Have you ever, have you ever been in an animal shelter uh, where cows and horses are? And you know the smell. Some people say they love that smell. I guess it clears your sinuses or something. But it's a horrible smell. And this is where Jesus is going to be born. And so there, in these humble circumstances, uh, is Jesus is born. The delivery room is an animal shelter. And the cradle is a manger. The cradle is a manger. That's a feeding trough. thing that you feed animals in. And that's where she laid him. She lays him in the manger. Isn't it amazing? This is, you can see what a great act of humility this was, that, that the king of glory becomes an infant. That's one thing, for him to become a human being and take on a real human nature. And yet something even more, he became a poor infant. He came in the, the lowliest of circumstances in order to save you. He came all the way down into the pit in which we were in order to raise us up and bring us into the very presence of God. One of the things that we're told that Jesus did is he made it possible for, for us to enter into the presence of God. We have free access to God. Every Christian in this world has free access to God right now. Not that you'll physically see him, but you can speak to him. You can come to him anytime, day or night. And the writer of Hebrews says we have free access to God and we have freedom of speech when we get there. That we can speak to him as his son. I read to you a couple weeks ago from Jeremiah 31, verse 20, where it says that God, God speaks about Israel, his son Israel, and he talks about what a, 
how he had to chasten him and, and deal with him as, an, as a disobedient son. And yet he says, when I think of him, I have great joy because of my love for him. And here the Son of God comes into a world that's been mocked and marked by sin and rebellion against God. So he doesn't come into the Garden of Eden. He comes into an animal shelter, and he's born in these humble, humble circumstances. And don't forget who this is. You remember who he is. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. By the way, what that means is not that it makes every man smart. The fact that Jesus came into the world means now there is one who has lived on this earth that when you compare yourself with him, you see the truth about yourself. It's like this bright light upon us, and all of a sudden we see the truth. You remember Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, when he finds himself in the presence of God? When the glory of God, all of a sudden, he's right there in the midst of it in the temple. You remember what he says? He says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Woe is me. What am I doing here in the presence of this holy, glorious God? And this is what Jesus has done. Coming into the world, uh, he shows us what we are really like. He shows us how far short we come we can measure ourselves, we can compare ourselves with ourselves, but we recognize that Jesus, because of who he is and what he has done, even though he came through these humble circumstances, it shines a light on us and we see ourselves in the light of his glory. Let me read something to you. Napoleon, this is a very old quote, and I don't know its legitimacy for sure. Uh, it, it, I'm sure some would say this is contrived, but he was discussing Christ with one of his associates, Henry Bertrand, who had followed him. And uh, of course, uh, Napoleon had been um, put out as emperor of France now. And he has this conversation with Bertrand and he's telling him about Jesus and about how glorious Jesus is. And Bertrand, who was very faithful to Napoleon, but did not believe what Napoleon believed about Jesus. And this is what uh, Napoleon said to him, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ was not a mere man. Superficial minds see a resemblance between him and the founders of empires and the gods of their kingdom, of their religions. The resemblance does not exist. There is between Christianity and the forms of pagan worship the distance of infinity. Everything in Christ astonishes me. His spirit overawes me and his will confounds me. He commands us to believe and gives no reason besides his own claim. I am God. Trust in me. Between him and the others in this world, there is no possible comparison. He is truly a being by himself. His sentiments, the truths which he announced, and his manner of life are unexplainable. Philosophers who try to solve the mysteries of the universe by their empty dissertations are fools. Christ speaks with authority. The, the closer I come, Napoleon says, the more carefully I examine him. Everything is above me, 
and as a grandeur which overpowers, I search in vain in history to find one similar to Jesus or anything which can approach the gospel he preached. Everything about him is extraordinary. And he was true. He was just Napoleon. He wasn't Christ. And he understood that. This Jesus, who is all glorious, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. John says, the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's a mark of deity. That's how God described himself to Moses in the Old Testament, full of grace and truth. So this is the one who was born in this lowly manger. And so Peter says, or Luke says, he is, his coming into this world is the greatest act of humility in all of history in order to save you and save me. And then secondly, uh, his coming into the world is the high point of the ages. I'm actually stealing a phrase out of Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, which I'm not supposed to do, but I'm doing it anyway. In Hebrews 9, 26, it says that he, he was manifest at the consummation of the ages, the high point of the ages in order to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. But in the text that we have in verses 8 through 14, you can see that that's exactly what this is. In the same region, there were some shepherds saying, staying out in the, in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around him and they were terribly frightened. Like every other person who finds himself in the presence of God, they were terribly frightened. They were filled with fear. Because this announcement by the angels to these shepherds was that this is the greatest event that's ever taken place. Before the, the birth of Jesus, announcements had been made by the angels to Zechariah and to Mary and to Joseph. You remember those we saw back in chapter 1. But now the fact, Jesus has been born. And now the fact of his birth, the birth of Jesus, was announced by the angels to the shepherds. So in verse 8, he says, in the same way, in that same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. Shepherds. They're announcing it to the shepherds, not the priests. Isn't that amazing? The angels came and announced it to shepherds. You've got to understand, shepherds had a legal status in the country, in this, in this culture, in which they couldn't even testify in court. They had no address. They just roamed around with their sheep. And they smelled like their sheep. And sometimes they look like their sheep. And yet this is the group to which the announcement came. Isn't that amazing? Don't you love that? I'm so glad for that principle that God comes to announce to us through the Spirit this glorious event. In verse 9 it says, An angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. The glory of the Lord here is what has come to be called the Shekinah of God. It's a Hebrew expression that means it's, it's the manifest presence of God. The glory of his person. In the Old Testament, remember, it, it would show up, and it was in the temple. When they built the temple, the glory came and dwelt in the temple. God manifested his glorious presence in the temple. But in the book of Ezekiel, 500 years before the birth of Christ, the glory left. Ezekiel records it. He, say, he talks about how it, it rises up and it just moves out of the temple and it goes away. And the Shekinah glory of God has not been seen since then, 500 years. And all of a sudden, it shows up here to these shepherds. 
They've been without the visible sign of God's presence for 500 plus years. And now God manifests the sign of his presence before these shepherds. (laughs) Remember, God had told Abraham, all peoples on earth are going to be blessed through you, through this descendant of yours. Verse 11, for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Prophesied 700 years before by Micah. This is where he would be born. Verse 12, and this will be a sign for you. He's, going to give, he's given a sign to the shepherds, so you'll know that this is really true. You'll, this is how you'll see him. You'll find him, a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. This expression, wrapped in cloths, is the same one that's used when they wrapped up a corpse. They would wind the cloth around them very tightly and lay them in a tomb. And he says, you're going to see an infant wrapped like a corpse in a manger, a feeding trough. That's a sign to you that this is the coming of the Messiah. Isn't that amazing? Don't you love this about God? How he loves to use weakness. He loves to stoop and to use weakness in order to display his glory. It's glorious. And it says, suddenly, when this angel appears, a multitude in heaven appears of the heavenly host. Now, what it sounds like, it's possible that what he's saying is all the angels of heaven begin to sing in praise and worship him, and the shepherds saw some of them. They couldn't see them all, but they could see some of them as they sang praise to this glorious king who has come to be born in a manger. All the host of heaven sang, and some of them were visible to the shepherds. Ah, wouldn't you love to talk to one of those shepherds? Wouldn't it be something to talk to them? What was that like? You're out there in the field with your sheep. You know nobody cares for you. You're the lowest of the low on the status ladder. Everybody considers you to be people that are just kind of like homeless people today. You're out there in the field with your sheep. And all of a sudden, the angels of heaven appear to you. And they begin to sing praises to this glorious king who's been born in the most humble of circumstances. And here's the sign. You're going to go and find them, and you're going to find this baby wrapped tightly in cloths and lying in a manger. Not doesn't sound like royalty, does it? Isaiah 53, when he talks about Christ's suffering, he says... Uh, there was nothing about him that would attract us to him. Everything about him in his suffering, he didn't even look like a man. He was beaten so badly. And in his very entrance into our circumstances, he is seen as the most humble of births, the most humble of contexts in which a baby could be born. I know all of you, when you had children and you, you know, redecorated the bedroom and painted it up and put all this beautiful little furniture in there and you brought your friends over to show them this, this gift from God. That's the way to do it, isn't it? But God just did it differently. And it really does show us something. It's when he says this is a sign to you, 
is to point to some reality, and that reality is God has stooped to save you. He's humbled himself to the lowest of circumstances in order to come into your life, into your world, and into your life, and to bring you back into relationship with him through faith in his son. One last thing is found in verses 15 through 20. And um, I'm going to read those verses again. Verse 15, when the angels had gone away from them into the heavens, into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, they've just seen something they've never seen before. And so they begin talking to each other and they say, let us go right now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about the child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary, Mary, the mother of Jesus, this probably 17, 18-year-old girl, Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. You all know what pondering is, right? <laughs> Just ruminating on this, running it through her mind. What's happening is she treasured it. It's like a baby book. You have baby books for all your kids? I asked my wife that the other day. Do you have a baby book for our children? Yeah. Where are they? I don't know. That's terrible, isn't it? Where are, your, where are your baby books? Look at you're talking to each other right now. Where are the baby books? Well, Mary didn't have a baby book. She just began to treasure these things in her heart, pondering them in her heart, thinking about them over and over again. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. See, they weren't put off by the humility of this situation. I think that's why they were chosen. That's probably how their children were born, in a manger are laid in a manger when they were born. And what they saw was the most amazing thing in the world. And so it says, notice these, these four things. First of all, in verse 17, it says, the shepherds spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. They spread the word. They're witnesses. These shepherds that can't be legal witnesses in a court are now the witnesses of God to tell people what had happened. Because all they did is they told people what they saw, what they felt, and what they experienced. And then secondly, in verse 18, he says, people who had heard the message were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. People aren't amazed at much anymore, are they? I mean, think of it. Somebody got me for Christmas one of those little gadgets you put your phone in and you, and you see, you know, what is it called? Artificial reality. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> and so you look like a fool looking all around you as you got these things on. But we're not amazed by very much. But people were amazed at this. They were absolutely amazed at this. They're astonished, not by the shepherds, but by the, what the shepherds have witnessed, and God gave them credibility. He's given you credibility, by the way. You're witnesses for Christ. You're called ambassadors of Christ. God has saved you and given you your open eyes to see Christ so that you can tell other people about it. Every Christian is to be a witness for Christ and a leader in this world because 
God wants to use you to lead people to this, this humbly born, glorious king that's now seated on the throne in heaven. I don't know why he chose you like that. I don't know why he chose me like that. Why would he do that? Look at us. I mean, look around the room. Do we look impressive? Do we look like we'd be people that everyone would want to listen to? No, I'm really surprised you're listening to me right now. Well, this is the appointment he's given us to bear witness to Christ. And it says, and then the third thing in verse 19, it says, Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. She meditated on these things. Very strong word in Subbalo. It's like she, she brought all these thoughts together and she's starting to see the implications of them. And she's amazed by it because she's the one who bore this baby. She's the one who carried this baby for nine months and now has delivered this glorious person, this eternal person who has become a man as well as God so that he could die for us. Wow. And then the fourth thing is in verse 20, he says, the shepherds return glorifying and praising God. That's worship. They were worshiping God for all the things that they had heard and seen. They, they praise and worship God. That's a fitting response to the message of Christmas. It really is. It's kind of neat that every five years, uh, I guess that's what it is, five years, that Christmas becomes on Sunday. Because the message of Christmas is a glorious message for this world. In fact, notice this process. They're amazed at what they see. Their eyes are opened. And then there is contemplation about it. They begin to think about it. And then they, they worship God. And then they bear witness. You know, I'm convinced, uh, and I've learned, this, I've learned this in my life, that if I'm not worshiping Christ, I certainly won't witness for Christ. If, I don't, if I'm not experiencing this the glorious reality of what it means to have a relationship with Christ on a daily basis, I'm not going to bear witness of him. I'd rather talk to you about stuff that's happened to me that's really bad. When my, I'm in my right mind, when I'm pondering the right things, I'm amazed at the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm amazed that he would die for me. I don't know about you, but I'm just absolutely amazed that he would come into this world to find me and to give me life, and to bring me into the family of God. I heard the gospel when I was uh, just an infant. I heard the God. I remember the. I can still remember when I was four years old. Before I went, to, I wasn't even in kindergarten. I heard the gospel explained to me in a way I could understand it, just like uh, Ryan did this morning. Someone explained to me the gospel, why Jesus came into the world. And of course I believed it because I trusted the person who told me. And years later I came to realize, wow, I'm a believer. I actually believe this glorious gospel message, the good news that Christ came into the world to save us from our sins. That's, that's a glorious act of God. And when I'm worshiping him, then I will bear witness to him. And that's what I want you to realize that worship always precedes evangelism. Evangelism is sharing the gospel. We'll all share the gospel if we're worshiping him. If, if it's our pattern of worshiping Jesus Christ, if we actually are in awe of who he is and we express that in worship to him in our lives, we'll bear witness to him for him. We'll tell people about him because it's the most impressive, the most impressive thing that's ever happened to me is coming to know Jesus Christ.
Do you really have an appreciation for the birth of Jesus? Have you grasped the significance of this event? God becoming man, the eternal person took on a human nature, and now for all eternity, he's going to have both a divine nature and a human nature. Still the, still the eternal person. This person hasn't changed, but he now is one of us, as well as a member of the triune Godhead. And he's embraced you, believer. He's come into the world, and he's brought you into relationship with him. And he's opened your eyes to his glorious, the glorious reality of who he is. I think last week you heard this passage, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, for a child will be born to us just 750 years before the event. But Isaiah prophesies, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Now, when they say government, they're talking about God's kingdom. The government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, or Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Father of the Ages, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And as stupendous as this is, there's more. He became a man so that he could rescue us from our alienation from God. See, we were made for God. We were made for relationship with God. Life doesn't really make sense until we are reconciled to God. And then we begin to see life through a whole new lens. And things look completely different. He was born in these most humble of circumstances to enter into our world. But he died in shame. Now, remember when they went and saw him, he was wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. Because he had been born into the world naked and helpless. As far as being a little bitty baby. But then when he died for you, he was stripped naked in shame and degradation and hung on a cross as though he were a criminal. And he stood in our place. He was stripped of his dignity, so to speak. And yet he was willing to go through that shame for us. For the love of Christ controls us, Paul says. That means Christ's love for us, not our love for Christ. I've always found that I never love him enough, but he's loved me perfectly. And so Paul says, the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. He made him, the Father made him who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then this one last passage of scripture that you're familiar with in Second Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says, for you know you, believer, know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. This is why Luke believed this was the greatest event that ever took place. As he looked on, as he heard about this, and he's describing it, what a glorious event this is. We have reason to worship Christ. Remember that song, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. You've already heard that, that gospel song. It's true. 
That's based upon Isaiah 53. He'll look upon his seed. He'll look upon those for whom he died and is saved. And he'll be satisfied, Isaiah says. I have, that's really hard to believe, isn't it? I don't know how about you feel about this, but if you were to ask me, do you think God really delights in you? I would say, based upon Scripture, I believe that. Based upon my feelings most of the time, I would say, no, I could never believe that if it wasn't for the Word of God, that He delights in me. He's the only one I know that delights in me. <laughs> Isn't that true? He's the only one who unreservedly delights in His people. And that's why He sent His Son into this world in such humble circumstances in order to change all of history. At the high point of the ages, Jesus came to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's what the gospel is. The gospel isn't about what you should do. The gospel is about what Christ has done. What God calls you to do about it is to believe it, to trust him, to put your faith in Christ, the one who entered the world in this way on your behalf. That's, that's what he calls you to do. He doesn't call you to do something for him, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. In other words, our salvation doesn't come from our works. But then he says, for, because we are his workmanship. The Greek word for workmanship is poema. We get a word poem from it, his beautiful, glorious work. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. He did all this to save you. And he saved you by grace through faith and for good works. Not because of your good works, but for good works. Good works in Scripture, let me explain what good works are and then I'll stop. Good works, this is the kind of good works we are called to do. Good works is doing good to people. Every opportunity you have, every circumstance you have, to look for ways to be good to people for the glory of God. Because that's what God did for you. You know, when you realize that God did this for us, not because we asked him to, but because of his love for us. And he says, now I want you to go. And wherever you go, you're going to find people to whom you can do good for the glory of God. Isn't that a simple assignment? What, what are you supposed to do in life? You're supposed to do good to everybody you can in every circumstance you can for the glory of God. And that will glorify him and give him glory. When somebody says, why would you do this? Because God gave me his son. And I want to give this to you. Because you need it. I needed his son so desperately and he freely gave his son for me. Father, we truly are a blessed people. Not because we're Americans. Not because our circumstances are so wonderful. We are a blessed people because we have the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are blessed people all over this world. Some of them in the most humble of circumstances, suffering in all kinds of ways, and yet they're blessed because they have the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that as we go from this place today, uh, we would go with the intention of because we worship you and we praise you and we thank you for what you've done in Christ that we can't help but tell others. 
Oh God, we pray that you would help us to fulfill your will in our lives and the power of the Spirit for your glory and the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.